Hello, and welcome again to another conservative historian podcast. This one entitled, On the Frontiers, Foreign Policy in Ancient Rome, Tang Dynasty China, and America. The date, August 2021. And my name, Belisarius Abbas. In Peter Dennis and Michael McNally's work, The Teutoburg Forest, AD 9, the destruction of Varus and his legions. The authors note, quote, Throughout AD 8 and the early part of AD 9, Arminius, a German war leader, used his position under the governor of Germania inferior well, ostensibly promoting Rome, whilst in reality welding the tribes together in an anti-Roman alliance, agreeing with his confederates that they would wait until the Roman garrison had moved to their summer quarters and then rise up against the invaders. With the arrival of September, the time soon came for the Roman troops to return to their stations along the Rhine. And as they marched westwards through the almost impenetrable Teutoburg Forest, Arminius sprang his trap. In a series of running battles in the forest, Varus's army, consisting of three full Roman legions and several thousand auxiliaries, a total of roughly 20,000 men, were destroyed. Unquote. This destruction spawned one of the more emotional phrases to supposedly emanate from Caesar Augustus. Quote, Quintilius Varus, give me back my legions. Unquote. Augustus may have envisioned his northwestern frontier to be the Elba River. It would have been much shorter and more easily defended than the Rhine or the Upper Danube, with Pannonia in the middle. But the destruction of Varus and his legions put paid to that plan. So instead, the Rhine would be the frontier for the next 450 years of the Roman Empire. Invasions would follow, but Roman civil wars fought between rival emperors would sap the state far more than Germanic incursions. Nearly 400 years before Varus's destruction, a group of Celtic tribes invaded Italy and sacked Rome. Later in the 200s BCE, Hannibal Barca would invade Italy and lead his armies within sight of the city. These memories so festered in the Roman mind that when, in 110 BC, a confederation of Germanic tribes invaded Italy, the Romans would return their brilliant general, Gaius Marius, to continuous and consecutive consulships to keep him in the field. The fact that he was spectacularly successful and that his breaking of the presidents of a single year of consulship was not as important to the Romans as the physical security of their state. From Augustus' day to the first foreign sack of Rome in the 4th century CE was a testament that the Romans wished to fight their wars on the frontiers, well away from Italy and away from the city itself. After Teutoburg, Augustus decided to keep the standing army at 150,000 men, or roughly 30 legions, a significant expense in peacetime. Most of these troops were concentrated along the Rhine, the Danube, and in Syria against possible threats from the only other powerful unified state in the Near East, the Parthians. Despite the lack of organized, solid enemies, Augustus knew of the power of both deterrence and readiness in case a possible threat arose. Though there were still constant skirmishes and conflicts with the tribes, Many were fought by Augustus's descendants, such as Tiberius, Drusus, and Germanicus. 
the Roman Empire would not be fundamentally threatened by outside invaders for 140 years after Augustus' death in 14 CE. One of Italy's few major military forces consisted of the Praetorian Guard, originally constructed to protect the emperor, but in later years would become emperor makers, who watches the watchdogs indeed. But aside from the Praetorian Guard and some marine-like units, the vast majority of Roman troops were along the frontiers. The Tang Dynasty of China, which ruled from the mid-600s to 907 CE, also understood the need for a strong frontier. Major military pressure came from the Turkish frontier, roughly in the northwestern part of the state. But the Tang defeated the Turks in 657 CE, beginning 150 years of Tang control over the region. As a result of these improvements and victories, the common people could spend their time farming and inventing. It was during this successful era that woodblock printing and gunpowder were created in China. Meanwhile, the borders of the Tang Dynasty expanded far into Korea and Central Asia. China became even more prominent during the Tang Dynasty than it had been during the previous Han Dynasty. The Chinese regularly communicated with lands far west as Persia, present-day Afghanistan, and even the Byzantine Empire. Goods, and more importantly, ideas, continued to be exchanged along the Silk Road. But there is a caveat to this, a key to managing security on the frontier. Tai Sung, the Tang Emperor from 626 to 649, shrank the government at both the central and state levels, the money saved by using a smaller government enabled Taisong to preserve food as a surplus in case of famine and provide economic relief for farmers in case of flooding or other disasters. In other words, to preserve the fundamental prosperity of China, Taisong shrunk the cost of the domestic government, of the domestic spend, in order to have more money for security purposes along the frontiers. Now, consider that plan and consider the United States of 2021. Augustus and Taisung understood two simple choices. In Augustus's case, it was fight them along the Rhine or in Italy. In the case of Taisung, fight them in the Northwest, in Central Asia, or near his capital of Chang'an. One of the best ways to rally support or build up cash donations is to instill fear of the other. The other is always trying to take something from you that you own by right. The other is trying to oppress you, steal from you, threaten your family. In some cases in the U.S. today, organizations such as Black Lives Matter subsist almost entirely on the premise that roving battalions of police, the other in this case, seek to destroy African Americans. This is not true. Now on the right, there is the concept that roving gangs of illegal immigrants are trying to do the same. Though illegal immigrants tend to commit crimes at the same rates as citizens within the state. These are cases of the other that are being trumped up for political purposes. But as the saying goes, even a paranoid has enemies. And the United States has enemies. These are not just the other. They are real. They exist. And they must be discussed. So the challenge is to discern between a true enemy of our republic, Iran, say, from forces within the republic, 
let's say police forces or illegal immigrants. That distinction needs to be clear. So what does a frontier, though, look like in a global world? What does it look like for the United States in 2021? It is not as if barbaric hordes lying around Toronto or Calgary will come pouring across the borders as the Romans had to face. And as for the South, well, our border there is a problem. Anti-immigration advocates have several strong points. First, people from quasi or total socialistic authoritarian countries will bring those values to the United States. Second, the entitlement state, something non-existent for the first 150 years of the Republic, changes the dynamic of what an immigrant seeks. In 1900, an immigrant would be seeking a job, trying to purchase a farm, or find something to work. Instead, today's immigrants can tap into a host of social services, not the least of which is health care. And you have Democratic Party leadership who eyes immigrants not as workers, but rather as potential voters. Want to see what liberals really think of immigration? Note how they are okay with Mexican immigration when Mexicans primarily or historically become Democrats, once citizens. And yet, these same supposedly pro-immigration people abhor Cuban immigration, often because these people tend to become Republicans. For the likes of Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, immigration is not about workers or humanity. It's really about cold political calculus. But let's be clear. The immigrants on our southern border do not want to conquer America. They want to be Americans. The Vandals, Visigoths, and Franks who destroyed vast swaths of the Western Roman Empire in the 5th century CE were not interested in becoming Romans, but instead turning Rome into a quasi-Germania and doing it by the sword. So again, what does a frontier look like? For America in 2021, it seems like a place where an attack might emanate. This is not rocket science. We know the threats. Iran, North Korea, China, and Afghanistan. For all the pretensions of Vladimir Putin, even Russia is a primary threat only because they have lots of natural resources, including oil, and because they have nuclear weapons. Other than that, Russia's GDP ranks 11th globally, less than that of Brazil, and roughly one-third of Germany's. Let me step back on a little bit of a different tangent here before we get further about defining frontiers. I have talked about this many times before, about what is the role of a government. This is not new topics for frequenters of this podcast, but the foreign affairs aspect has again risen to the fore in the past few weeks. One of my answers is security. But this term is elastic, and in the hands of progressives, it can metastasize in ways unheard of even 20 years ago. For the left, security is defined as security from hunger or a security uh, from a lack of education. A secure retirement, a secure job, and wage are also broadly defined by the left as securities that they seek to ensure. And then, of course, the biggie. There is security, as defined by the left, from poor health. Most liberal supporters of this term miss, and not not a, a few on the right, that the term's aspects and security parameters consists of freedoms taken from you when you cede these securities to the government. 
First off, these are not free. Nothing is free. And there are not enough billionaires to pay for this level of supposed domestic security. But control is the other piece. Many liberal supporters of these types of securities would change if they fully realized that their security is not their own to decide. The surprise when the education provided comes with leftist ethics and in certain schools. The, realiz the realization that the secure retirement is at the behest of what a bureaucrat in the Social Security Administration deems it to be. And most of all, remember that security on health? That is on the terms of the HHS, Health and Human Services Department, and all of those bureaucrats, not on the individual. If you like your doctor and the government is in the middle, you probably do not get to keep your doctor. Instead, this is how security looks like when the government provides your health security. You get rationing, you get long wait times between visits, and you get denial of elective choices. But when security is defined this way, security defined as protection from physical harm perpetuated by another human being, that is a good role for government. This fundamental security is in the form of the police and an army. Now, one could provide private security, of course, but unless one is Jeff Bezos, having a bodyguard around for more extended periods can be problematic, not to say very expensive. Additionally, when someone breaks into your house or tries to steal your car, a private security detail cannot project into the locations of criminals to punish the perpetrators. Again, the government is uniquely capable of providing police, hence the Greek etymology, whereas polis is the state and thus policy, politics, and police. And even, even Jeff Bezos cannot afford an army, well, at least not yet. Well, okay, maybe he could for two to three years, but not for 20. So what is clear is that government, in the form of a standing army, can provide physical protection from harm from other human beings. But the other question then is still where we started, the where. The Romans and the Tang Dynasty both understood the where is away from the homeland, originally Italy or around the capital of Chang'an in the case of the Tang, away from the civilians. And this is not just a lesson for ancient or medieval history. For much of British history, the frontiers were weak. Romans invaded in the 100 CE, Saxons in the 400s, Vikings in the 800s, and the Normans in 1066. But then, something within the psyche of the island changed. Maybe it was the establishment of the English kingdom or the realization that they were, in fact, an island, Scottish wars notwithstanding. But the frontier of England became not London or Winchester, as it was in those earlier times, but rather the English Channel. The Spanish wished to invade in 1588, but failed. The French in 1804, and the Germans in 1941, and they all failed. But of course, with this latter, the Germans in 1941, London suffered immensely because the frontier moved from the Channel to skies over the capital. Nevertheless, if the Wehrmacht or Napoleon's Old Guard or the Spanish pikemen had gotten their feet on Dover, England would have been screwed. But they fought these forces on the frontiers. And again, in this case, the frontiers were not the suburbs of London. It wasn't Winchester. It was the English Channel. 
In my last podcast, in several tweets, I have said this. We can fight them there or we can fight them here. This simple concept is not political philosophy or my opinions, but rather matters of the historical record. And this look requires a little history concerning America's traditional isolationism. The point of the Monroe Doctrine, issued in 1823 and drafted with the help of Secretary of State John Quincy Adams, was not just about forbidding Europeans from interference within the Western Hemisphere, but also to keep the United States from getting tangled up within European conflicts. Most of the founders, especially Washington, as he watched Braddock's disaster in the Seven Years' War, knew of the bloody history of European competitions and wished to avoid these entanglements. Even nearly 100 years after the doctrine, the U.S. only entered World War I after the Zimmerman telegram in 1917, three years after the beginning of that conflict. The U.S. only entered World War II after Pearl Harbor, two years after the start of that war. For nearly every war, up until Korea, the U.S. began with a very small peacetime force. For example, in 1940, with war raging in Europe and North Africa, and the Japanese pushing further into China, the U.S. Army stood at 270,000 troops, down from 4 million in 1918. That would change, of course. By 1942, there would be over 3 million. And by 1945, the United States Armed Services boasted 10 million people under arms. But note the difference between Monroe's time and that of Wilson or Roosevelt. The projection of foreign power, whether it be a U-boat or aircraft carriers, changed the dynamic. What made the Monroe Doctrine work was two vast oceans, a relatively peaceful northern border, one we still have today, and a weak southern neighbor in Mexico. London did not suffer from the Spanish in 1588, nor the French in 1804. But it did from the Germans in 1940 through 1944, because Britain's frontier changed and shrunk. Technology has brought the frontiers to us. Now a little bit about the history of American foreign policy. From 1788 up until the late 1980s, the expansion of the nation is shown by the Louisiana Purchase, or acquisitions such as Florida and Alaska, quasi-imperialist expansionist wars such as the Mexican War of 1846 and 1848 and the Spanish-American War of 1898 and the acquisition of the Panama Canal essentially drove part of that foreign policy. It was, well, one of the terms we've heard before. It was manifest destiny, the continuous expansion of the original American Republic throughout the continent. What worked, though, hand-in-hand with that was the Monroe Doctrine. That meant that as long as it applied to North America, there was expansionism. But apart from North America, the Monroe Doctrine created the isolationist mindset. And again, this isolationist mindset was in evidence by that troop size. Remember, with war raging in Europe in 1940, our troop size at the time was roughly one-tenth of that of Germany or Britain or Japan. Now, all of this changed, obviously, after World War II. After World War II, there was a different thing that was driving us, and that primarily was the Cold War. 
And especially from 1945 to the late 1980s, the Cold War drove pretty much all of our, of our thinking in foreign policy. Whatever the question was, the answer was stop the Soviets. But in 2021, there is little to no desire for direct imperial acquisitions, not even Trump's abortive, possibly tongue-in-cheek discussions around Greenland. Aside from China, there is no superpower with which to contend on the scale of the Soviet Union, and proxy wars such as Korea and Vietnam and numerous other theaters, ranging from Cuba to Greece to Saddam's Iraq. And even China's ambition, though considerable, align more with reconstructing imperial Chinese hegemonies, such as Taiwan, but not in, let's say, trying to conquer all of Asia. The other salient aspect about recent foreign policy is the war on terror, which correctly should be termed a war on Islamic extremists, because outside of this ideology, terror commitments are few. So to put simply, probably oversimplifications, there were these key aspects of American foreign policy since the beginning of the Republic. The first was is that expansionist mindset. The second was is that outside of North America, a very isolationist mindset. And then finally, in the later part of the 20th century, the Cold War, the contention with the Soviet Union. And finally, the War on Terror. The problem is, is, is that the War on Terror, unlike those other three policies, do not provide an overarching scale of what foreign policy should be. So, for example, the war on terror does not necessarily dictate how we deal with a Russia, in India, or a China. There just simply doesn't seem to be any kind of true policy at that point. Since the fall of the Berlin Wall, American foreign policy has been, well, vague at best. From Obama's pivot to Asia to Trump's failed negotiations with North Korea's Kim Jong-un, they all seem impetuous and lackluster. All at the same time, foreign policy does not seem the creation of well-thought-out, planned for the next four to five years, much less 20 years. They do not seem to have any long-term aims or goals, or what does victory actually look like? These are questions that never really seem to get debated when it comes to foreign policy. The withdrawal from Afghanistan is of a piece with this. Are we withdrawing because its utility as a base is questionable? Is it a cost versus reward issue? Is the Taliban indeed over their terrorist harboring ways? None has been answered. Essentially, the answer is that the American people are tired of being in Afghanistan, and the proof is in the polls. But these are the same polls that show Americans want entitlements, and yet a poor taxes all at the same time. That is not a policy question. It is a feeling, and feelings are not foreign policy. It also does not help that as the government's many intrusions into domestic life taking place over the past 120 years, it is logical that the focus and energy of the American people and its elected magistrates would be in that sphere, focused on the domestic. Surely part of the calculus for the Afghanistan withdrawal is the redirection of those funds, not back to the American people and let's say tax cuts, of course, but rather to a domestic program. And as of this writing, 19 Republican senators have shown in the recently passed wrongly named infrastructure bill, bringing home the bacon has its benefits, oink indeed, not so much with foreign policy. The superb Eli Lake states that foreign policy comes down to bad 
and worse choices. I would demur on this level of gloom, but his point is well taken. There are no great or obvious policies or we would be pursuing them. The issue is, is that there is no policy at all. Well, here's one. The ability of our enemies today to project their evil intents from anywhere in the world, including a planned, hatched, and executed in the deserts of Afghanistan, means that isolationism is no longer a viable security option. It worked under Monroe. It will not work under Biden or whoever the next president is. Instead, we need to define our frontiers and put our protectors on guard on those frontiers. And is our frontier today the Canadian or Mexican border? Those are the frontiers of the homeland. But if the frontier is is where we need to fight our enemies, then those frontiers should be in places such as Korea, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, and yes, Afghanistan. As I write this, on this very day, in fact, American service people died trying to get Americans out of Afghanistan. It is a reminder, as if we needed one, of the dangers that exist in our world. This was the first loss of life in Afghanistan in 16 months. And when I talk about foreign policy or our army serving on the frontiers, I am fully aware that these are not statistics, but people with families friends, and hopes, and plans for a future that in the case of today will never come true. But it is also a reminder that there are evil people in this world, and those evil people need to be contended with. The question is not when, but where. Thank you for listening. My name is Bell Avis.